0: Look at the adjective, play. The you, and I
1: have had the brain, the genus. All right, a shot! Hey. I told you. I told, you. I told you. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh,
0: gonna put the butts in the seat.
2: Hello there wrestling fans and welcome to episode number 42 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. I am British wrestling commentator, manager and general dog's body Dean ASAKA, the Twisted Genius, saying thank you so much for downloading this episode. I am joined as ever by sports journalist and man with a blue tick on Twitter that I'm still jealous of. Liam Hap, Liam. Good evening. How you doing, my friend?
1: You're jealous of the blue tick. Oh, well, huh? I wish you'd have told me sooner. <laughs> you, you know, it's, yeah. it's so subtle with you. I mean, if, if I'd have known, if only there were like repeated overt mentions <laughs> in, the, in the introduction <laughs> of all previous 41 episodes of because of WCW, then maybe I could have picked up on your angst there, sir. Just
2: get me my own blue tick, and this this whole this whole ugly debacle will be over with. Mate, I have been trying. I've been trying
1: to help you. I've been trying to help my friends at the Indie Corner, who, by the way, you should all totally check out because I write for them now, and that's totally a thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I try to help spread the wealth, but the verified process has been a bit inconsistent as of late. I was lucky. I managed to get through when there was a formal application process, and they were they were screen things and uh, getting back in touch with me and go back and forth, and eventually they deemed me worthy of it. I don't want to tell them that I lied to them, but...
2: and uh this episode we we are going back so we haven't done this for a while it's about time we did we are going back to a pay-per-view recap we are looking over a show and we have got ourselves a very special guest oh yes i'm very pleased to say that we have got brian barrera now you may think brian barrera why do i know that name you'll know him as the man who runs I think I think we can easily say he runs the Twitter account for WCW Nostalgia Fiends like you and me. He runs WCW Worldwide. Brian, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to Because WCW.
0: Hey, thank you guys for the invite. You know, I honestly would would love to get one of those blue Twitter check marks as well. So who do I need to talk to, Liam? Where do I need to go for that? I'm going to keep my
1: finger on the pulse of the of the process. And if they ever open it back up for people to put themselves out again, I'm definitely going to put you guys forward as well. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a bit weird. I was lucky. I used to write for Yahoo Sport UK,
0: which oh, okay. uh, of, all, of
1: all the places I've written, I'm, I'm very much like Dean said, I'm very much a dog's body in sports media. Uh, but for a few years, I wrote for Yahoo, which obviously gives you an automatic profile regardless of what you're doing. And I think that's how I got mine.
0: But hmm. I'm, not, I'm yeah. not giving
1: it up, no, sir.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and honestly, I don't know if the WCW brand, considering it's not exactly mine to own. Uh, I don't think they'll give me that blue check mark automatically. There might be a couple red flags there keeping me from getting going.
1: Yeah, if it helps, I'll say one thing that was important to me in my process. If is a stress, it's not necessarily a a fame thing per se. Mm-hmm. Heaven knows if it was about fame, I wouldn't get it, even writing for Yahoo. Uh, the key thing is that is is this person looking or this website looking for a blue tick is it important that there is something to to make it clear that what they say is true. Are they at risk of being misquoted or parodied or things like that? Uh, so guys like ger- journalists and public figures generally tend to get a good slant on that because it's very possible that that you, you need a blue tick to vote. When when I say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm getting word that uh, Tyson Fury's training camp is it has been disrupted. The blue tick helps if I'm
0: on the scene, which I which I was once upon a time. Have you ever had any parody accounts pop up? you have uh, Liam Imposters happening on Twitter?
1: No, I'm actually disappointed I haven't. And if you th- if you think, oh yeah, it's only for celebrities, I know a couple of very good guys in football and boxing journalism who are not super well-known by any stretch of it, but their opinions have clearly rubbed up some mentally disturbed people enough that they've actually... Put forward a parody account earning like 12 followers because they're parodying the journalist with like a thousand followers who basically does like a local beat. These things happen, it's yeah, there's no accounting for people's uh instability.
2: <laughs> I give it till next week before someone sets up a Liam Crap account, and yeah, probably beat you. Me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, Brian, welcome to the show. So there, those people who, who may not be familiar with, with yourself and with, with the WCW Worldwide account, tell us a little bit about how, how, did, you, how did you start uh, the whole thing up?
0: Uh, it's basically, there was a time where I was running a website called com, and I have all these wrestling magazines, and a lot of the focus was put on the stuff from the 90s, you know, the heyday of wrestling. So, I had all these magazines, the WWF magazines and WCW magazines, and there was a time where I kind of fell out of doing that, and I had a moment where I just wanted to sell it all because, okay, I've I've had fun blogging, but I kind of want to walk away from it. I put the WWF magazines up for sale on eBay thinking, you know, here's a whole run of 92 WWF mags, let's see if I could get some money off of it, and uh, it turns out, no, these magazines are absolutely worthless. So... Instead of selling my entire collection, I held on to it. And then a year later, I was looking at my WCW magazines, and I realized, you know what? I don't really see a lot of these scans online. This is like a part of the wrestling history that gets ignored. So that became the idea of the website. This should basically be WCW-centric, everything that I'm scanning for the magazines. Uh, the, the website, you actually will have full magazine scans and I would to focus on just the entirety of WCW. It, it'd be a lot easier for me to do that as opposed to what I was doing on Drop To Hold was where to focus on old wrestling and current stuff. You know, if I focus on WCW, well, it's great. It's really dead. I don't have to really write about anything happening in a in modern day. I don't have to be constantly up to date with everything. So I could kind of just pick and choose what I want to do. So that just became the idea behind the website. I said, yeah, so
2: it's clo- close ended, and you've, yeah, you've got a, a finite amount of things to talk about. I guess I see what you mean. And of course, it was uh, I'm right in saying it was yourself who who managed to find the the uh, WCW magazine where um my my letter was published talking about um, Vader ending the myth of Sting <laughs> that we talked about it must be a good couple of years ago now, Liam
0: no i I remembered it that was uh in like the early 90s right 92 93 i think
2: yeah something like that yeah
0: yeah and i was
2: an impressionable teenager
1: yeah (laughs) that was stemming off the big fan vader tribute wasn't it yes yes it was our man brian who managed to dig up that very letter i thought that was really cool
2: well thank you for that brian it's good to be able to say thank you uh in person as it were albeit in the in the virtual realm um So let me ask you, what pay-per-view have you chosen to cover? And is is there a reason behind this choice?
0: Well, I decided to go with the WCW Slamboree 1998. And the whole reasoning behind my choice was that this is the first WCW pay-per-view I ever watched live. There was a time where I wasn't really a big wrestling fan because we didn't have cable television. So once we got that going and I was playing the video games, it, it became something that I got interested in. And I think this is around the time where I've maybe started watching WCW Week to Week for probably about a month at this point. But this was okay. the first pay-per-view that showed up and I begged my parents to buy it for me, whatever it was, the twenty five or thirty dollars. And this was the first one I ever sat there and watched live.
2: Nice. So this will this will have some some sharp memories for you. You never you never forget your first big show that you watch live,
0: do you? the uh, The funny thing is, there's a lot of this stuff that happened on the show that completely surprised me. I couldn't believe like this was the show that I first got experience uh, uh the WCW live with because there's so much happening in the terms of wrestling history that it's just absolutely bonkers how much was packed in this one three hour program.
2: Oh yes, there's an awful lot that happens. Definitely, we'll, we'll get onto that momentarily. And and finally, just on on talking about the the account itself, you know, have you had uh, any or much contact with um, any former WCW stars contacting you about things on the account?
0: Every now and then, I'll get just random people reaching out to me. I've had Disco Inferno reach out recently, ask me about some promo picks if if I had any of him uh psychosis did the same thing recently i guess they have some kind of convention going on oh. uh scotty riggs Lodi. there's a lot of people that i do get in contact here and there cactus jack that was a big one because i, I think i posted a catalog of his uh, his side business back in the early 90s there was a point where he left wrestling and he had a program or he had a little side hustle called cactus jackets where he sold leather <laughs> jackets I and never knew that. It's a legitimate thing. And I found the catalog on eBay and I scanned it. And out of nowhere, he contacted me and said, yeah, this is, you know, this really was a real thing. You know, it's funny to see this on the Internet again. Ha ha. You know, Cactus Jack, Mick Foley. So there, there's stuff like that that happens all the time. Oh, that's that's awesome.
2: I, I had no idea. Cactus Jack is. Love it.
0: And I, it was his, I guess, his idea of after WCW, this would be his new hustle. This will be what he focused on. And a, his wife was the model in a lot of the photos. So it's it's pretty funny. It's, it's just a strange thing in wrestling that happened. <laughs> Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one. And you're listening to Because WCW. Now choke on that.
2: Strap yourselves in, listeners. It is time for us to to start looking at this pay per view. And as Brian said, there is oh there is so much to talk about. Um, so we are in Worcester, Massachusetts and Tony Giovanni is welcoming us to, uh, to the show. We've got a first time ever on pay-per-view match between Bret Hart and Randy Savage with Roddy Piper as guest referee. Plus the power struggle between different factions of the NWO goes on. We're told that, uh, Scott Hall hasn't shown up yet. Although surely it would be news if he did turn up on time back in 1998. Um, First of all, we're taken back to Thunder last Thursday to look back over Eric Bischoff challenging Vince McMahon to a match, as if that's going to happen. Um, He reads out a response received from Vince's attorney, um, and uh, he states it's basically a cease and desist um, notice. And he states that the invitation is still open should Vince change his mind. No idea what this was supposed to achieve, but I'm sure we'll get to that later. And we even see the legendary head of security, Doug Dellinger, outside on during the day um with an all-access security pass for vince with vince's photo on it should he turn up um there's also a bunch of fans around him because it's at the back entrance of the building um which kind of reminds me that you should never show wrestling fans on camera because it's usually the worst ones in the world that hang around the back of the venue and just never make your product look all that great but hey um what, what was this What was this designed to achieve? I mean, this was at the height of the, the war between WWF and WCW, and I'm, I'm right in saying that this was when WCW was in, in the lead in the war.
1: Well, they'd actually just fallen behind. Uh, we're only a few weeks removed from the end of the 83 weeks, aren't we? Ah,
0: and
1: right. I'm not sure of the exact timeline, but I'm pretty certain we have just had... The uh, the invasion by DX, at the was it the Norfolk scope? Yes. So we've just had that, and this is this is a, an attempt at retaliation. So yeah, uh, there's there, there's obviously a certain degree of of not feeling very comfortable, and a bit of a a bit of a culture shock of actually being behind in the ratings war. From WCW, and as we will find out as we go through this show, their attempts to counter-program, counteract, counter-fight—they just get increasingly desperate from here. As anyone who's who's followed <laughs> anything from those this year and who's followed our episodes where we've looked at, I think in '98, we've done Bash at the Beach and uh, Halloween Havoc so far, and that was obviously when things were had already deteriorated, and here here's where they're starting to jump off the cliff.
2: Okay, well, we we open things up with a match for the WCW World Television title, Fit Finlay defending against Chris Benoit, which is certainly one way to open a pay-per-view. As Mike today mentions, these two men are familiar with each other. They've worked together in CWA in Germany and in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, And we've got a very lively crowd. They're certainly up for it. Um, It starts off with a hard chop from Benoit and then some European-style mat work, which is delivered with the kind of crispness you don't always see, um, especially in America. Uh, Benoit hits a really nice move that you never normally see, which is... It's a hip toss followed through into a cover, almost like a, a hip toss power slam for a two count, which I just thought was really unusual. Um, the selling by both men's top level here is something you don't see enough of in modern times. It's one of the things I lament about modern day wrestling. They don't sell enough. Um, Benoit gets slammed on the outside by Finlay. A rear chin lock with Finley sitting on Benoit's back gets counted into an electric chair drop by Benoit. Uh, the pace slows down to emphasize the toll it's taken. And basically each time Benoit's gaining some momentum, the more experienced Finlay is taking control of the match and slowing things down. Um back on the, uh, they, they go to the outside. Um, Finley's got a chair. Benoit grabs it from him, clubs him across the back with it. He then gets back in the ring and attempts to tow pay onto Finley, but Finley intercepts him with a chair shot to the head. That's kind of uncomfortable to watch with the benefit of hindsight. Um, Another thing that was notable here is that we had no time calls, given that time limit seems to be a constant feature of TV title matches. Um, Finley counters the trio of German suplexes from Benoit by running into the ropes and catching Benoit's throat over the top strand. Benoit lands a suplex to set up the diving headbutt, but then Booker T walks down the aisle, which distracts Benoit. This allows Finlay to land a dropkick from behind to the back of his head. Um, He rolls him back into the ring deadweight, nails Benoit with a tombstone pile driver for the win in 14 minutes 52 seconds so it was eight seconds before the time limit expired but i it didn't seem to be any any time limit announced at all but fantastic match to me exactly the kind of match that, that i like but then being uh, someone who grew up on british style european style wrestling it's, it's something right out my street um brian as someone who's buying your first paper live pay-per-view from wcw what, uh, what did you make of this first match?
0: Oh, yeah, this is the type of stuff I absolutely love. Chris Benoit was one of my early favorites watching WCW. I think that's primarily because he was so cool to play as in WCW versus NWO World Tour for the Nintendo 64. Uh, Just his clotheslines, the explosiveness, of how he wrestled in the game, uh, to see how that translated into the real-life Benoit and see that this actually was one and the same. He was just someone I immediately gravitated towards. And uh, you talk about the no time limits, uh, checks in this match well there was no disqualification either whenever finley hit him in the head with that steel chair it's kind of strange how they just uh, allow that but overall this is extremely hard-hitting match and it was pretty neat to see how uh, crazed the fans were for just something as simple as a chop to the chest they were just eating this match up
1: yeah i mean we Almost every pay-per-view episode we have, one thing we always touch upon is the art of the opener. And and with this, I I wouldn't say there's anything particularly uh, strategic about putting this first, but it's a very simple situation of... This is going to be a very good, hard-hitting match, and it can't fail. So yeah, you can, especially what we know about WCW crowds throughout the years. Generally, as, as as long as you don't kill the market too much, you are you are guaranteed a, a, a good crowd in the majority of the the, the states they run. Uh, these two guys are always going to be a good fit to just go out there and get us started with a bang. So that's good to see. Um, it also makes you, you remember just. Just how, just how deep, how good that that undercard scene was. You know, you got Booker T getting involved, Benoit Finley. These three guys will continue mixing up over the title going into, at the very least, the Great American Bash. Uh, but it's also worth remembering that even, if I remember correctly, even at this point in time, in early summer '98, some people were starting to get a little bit antsy that. Maybe they wouldn't get any further than that. Uh, we, were, we were starting to get to that point where the main eventers were being, you know, rotated and repeated and kept mm. in that same bracket. Uh, similar thing was happening with the mid carders, and we were reaching that stage now where the fans would have really liked to have seen. Chris Benoit, Wrestle Ric Flair, Booker T, Wrestle Sting. Just a little bit of a fraternization between those those two levels would have been yeah. amazing. And the closest we ever got to that really was, well, well, I'll discuss that later because we've got DDP and Raven in a feud uh, later on the card. But that was mostly because DDP was a late comer to the to the Millionaires Club more than anything else. So yes. so we had that segregation of sorts with the with the brackets on the card. But yeah, for what it was, it was really good. And, and, and this led to the best of seven series, which goes that, you know, m- most diehard WCW fans will, will recall that even to this day. That's one of the things in WCW folklore is the best of seven series. And I believe it starts either the next night on Nitro or the week after.
2: I mean, generally speaking with the, the opening match, you would you would get either someone with a a strong gimmick that the crowd would react to or the high flyers who'd be hitting the big moves to pop the crowd this isn't your typical opener this is normally a match that'd be somewhere in the middle but i mean it's it it is a a perfect opener and it's it's hard hitting and, and grabs your attention
1: yeah ideally you don't you don't want to waste a a feud match or a match with a big degree of emotional investment on the opener because you know if you've been putting in the work building it up on television if you've got serious star power in the match you know that even halfway through three quarters main event of the card that's going to get a pop from the crowd as long as you don't blow that buzz of the audience so yeah as, as we've said in the past the, the, the key is really to get you could say a cold match sometimes where there's not a lot of storyline there is a little bit of storyline here there's a bit of title contention but it's obviously not the biggest storyline on it. you know, with all the soap opera stuff with ddp raven you've got goldberg rising there's much stronger storylines this is more about the wrestling and that's the other part of it is that the wrestling delivers and whatever style you you want an energetic sort of match to go on first to tap into just how pumped that crowd is. So yeah, as you said, that's why it fit nicely.
0: I think it sets the pace for the rest of the night. And it's funny because to me, this is the match of the night. Like nothing else on this card touches it as far as Mm. I'm concerned. And the, the distraction finish that was actually something that I, uh, I, I don't remember, but the idea of a distraction finish where Benoit turns around and doesn't just get an immediate schoolboy pinup, like a modern-day WWE match. I, I'm glad they didn't do that. Benoit leaves the ring, and Finley comes at him through the ropes with this back drop kick to the back of Benoit's head. It was just so brutal looking. So um, that I, I enjoyed that. And like I said, this to me was the standard. I don't think anything else touches it. I, I think there's another match on this card that kind of gets close to it, that kind of sniffs around match of the night, but I, I don't think it beats it. I think this is it for you.
2: Uh, another thing that I noticed about about this that I, I've always loved with, with um, someone like Finley is if you notice when he's on the offense, he never lets go of his opponent. He's always grabs hold of some part of their body when he transitions from from one move to the next um and that that kind of thing is um you know it's it's, to, it's what you're what you're taught in the british style of wrestling and 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 uh, R- Regal as well, he's an absolute master of that, where you just you don't let go of your opponent. It just makes it look that, that bit more realistic, I guess, which uh, Benoit is also a master of. Um Okay, moving on to match number two. It is uh Brian Adams with Vincent representing NWO black and white versus Lex Luger. Um, Mike Tanay explains that this match came about as a result of Adams attacking Rick Steiner with a baseball bat. So I'm glad someone had reasons for to this, put this match on because it does just scream filler in a, a way of getting Alex Luger on the pay-per-view here. Um, match starts with Luger dominating Adams on the outside. And it does look like a revenge beating, to be fair. So he's, he's putting that uh, element over. Um, he's targeting Adams' shoulder, which is the body part of Steiner that Adams injured. Um, Luger gets distracted by Vincent and that allows Adams to attack him from behind and follow up with a hard looking pile driver Uh, Adams is in control of what is a very slow paced match in front of a much quieter crowd than we had for our opener Um, the the end comes rather abruptly and out of nowhere Adams charges him for a clothesline Luger ducks under, hoists Adams up for the torture act and gets the submission win in five minutes
0: I was actually a bit surprised they pulled that off. It was uh, the, the actual torture rack on Brian Adams. I wasn't expecting that type of finish. I was expecting Luger to run over this guy within a minute and be done. But, uh, you know, give Luger his credit, his due. He lifted him up and he hit that torture rack. And uh, this is just a dud. There was no real – there was no, nothing really happening here. I, I think that you said that there was a involvement with Rick Steiner – uh, this is some kind of revenge plot. I don't remember that at all. That doesn't really matter to, in the long-term uh, booking because I believe this is two or three weeks before Luger joins the NWO Wolfpack. So we're moving towards that era. And yes. I, I don't remember what where Rick Steiner fit in and all this stuff. I don't remember them really being friends or being buddies. And I think there's even a point where Giovanni points out, you know, Lex Luger, you know, through and through, he's our WCW man, or whatever he says, you know, through and through, he's WCW blood, and you know, two weeks later, <laughs> he's Red and Black Attack.
2: Yeah,
1: I mean, t- I'm, I'm glad someone brought up the Wolf Pack because that was always going to be subject to a run at some point, and there's no better time than now because my only thoughts on that second match is. St- Echoing the sentiments of Brian, there. I wish it lasted a minute too, because it was out of dross. But that's what you—that's <laughs> what you get from Brian Adams as a singles in in WCW. He—he he actually got a few singles matches on pay per view in 1998, and fuck knows why. I really, I really can't answer why they. There was one with Mongo McMichael. Seriously, at some point we're going to cover a pay per view that has Mongo McMichael versus Brian Adams. This is this is not a drill. <laughs> um, but but as far as the Wolfpack goes, yeah. As as far as some of the credibility that those though you had that they don't realise they had, because as we tend to know with hindsight now, Eric Bischoff really thought the not just his main eventers, but the 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 NWO brand name. Now that, that was the money, and nothing else in WCW had any sort of po- of potential or marketability. And so we get this civil war. Which, when I think about it, yeah, I'd have gone with splitting up the NWO and having them feud with each other as a way of keeping them out of the main event scene so that guys like Goldberg can come through. But instead, they're actually hogging it all over, and we get the inclusion of people like Lex Luger. And then the, the one that comes after is Luger actually talking Sting into joining. And they actually, I remember, they actually ran an angle where Sting faked joining NWO Hollywood, like if. Anything you've seen from the last two years of WCW television would make you believe that he would even pretend to fucking join the New World Order. Uh, and apparently, it's okay to join the Wolfpack because even though they're they're NWO, they're they're good guys. The, the whole thing was just a mess, and it took people out of it because you, you it, there's not enough emphasis put on the fact that you know Sting made people believe. Uh, the character standing against the nwo was so mm. good diamond dallas page a mid card a nice enough guy mid card not really worth much but by getting a few wins and then being recruited to join and then turning against the nwo he was made for life because it was such a it was such a premium thing to have someone actually choose against the new world order
0: mm.
1: and come out on top of it uh yeah. and they 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 neglected that by making it all about red versus yeah and then and then we had all the um the silliness that hogan decided that he wanted to wear the red shirts because they were selling better so they brought them all back together as a as a hill wolf pack so yeah it just it was just such a mess
2: you see you say that about different people you know joining the NWO or not believing that they joined the NWO. But you think about it. You had Eric Bischoff who got powerbombed through a stage by Hall and Nash. He joined the NWO. Randy Savage who was the man that Hogan turned on to to form the organisation in the first place. He joined the NWO. The Giant joined left and joined again. So it, it really became open season, and, it, and as we'll we'll see later on as this show progresses, that any kind of logical progression of storylines was out the window at this point.
1: Correct to an extent, but when they're dragging Sting into it, it's basically the death knell, because Sting was that bastion. He he was the, you know that that Crow character was unspeakably good. Mm. And there's, you know, him versus Hollywood Hogan at 97 drew a ridiculous number for a reason. Yeah. So for him to get involved in that, I mean, there's certain ones you can you can explain away a little bit. Some of them are daft, but you know, Savage. All right, you know, he he got beat by Hogan and he's been mauled and that. And he's like, if you can't beat him, join him He ends up being the guy who who starts turning against Hogan as well, which is also believable. I don't, I'm not a massive fan of him joining the New World Order, but you can kind of rationalise it in your head. Uh, Bischoff. Yeah, you know, they want to they want to turn them into the, the the whole idea of the New World Order. Being hills were they went from being the cool invaders they had to actually take over and become the system and that's why when people say oh yeah too many duds join the nwo it actually makes sense that once they started winning the war against wcw that they actually did recruit in numbers and you want all these you know you think of the bad guys on tv shows they have all these henchmen and foot soldiers and cool. then you have the guys like sting and ddp and goldberg who in a role reversal, they're the guys who are actually taking it to the NWO. And that's what gets them their babyface heat back. So, so a lot of it you can explain away. But Sting wearing an NWO t-shirt, I think that was that was jumping the shark.
2: Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, well, let's, um, let's move on to match number three. And this starts one of my favorite segments in... I, I, do you know what i think genuinely i can say this is this starts one of my favorite segments in in wcw history because it's something that sticks in my mind to this day crystal clear so it's um first of all we have our cruiserweight battle royal and before um the the rules of this are that the winner will face chris jericho immediately afterwards for the wcw cruiserweight title um which Jericho is not happy about. He brands it a conspiracy by WCW officials. But before David Penza, who is a former guest on this uh, very podcast, can introduce anyone, Jericho himself comes out to the ramp with a microphone and does his own introductions, making his own comments and giving some people ratings of how he rates their chances of winning. Um, So coming out in order, we have Supercalo, Chavo Guerrero, Ciclope, Damien, El Dandy, who is the winner of the Lou Ferrigno lookalike contest, according to Jericho. Um, El Grio, who uh, at this point in time, I have no idea who, who he is. I'm not familiar with him at all. Uh, Juventud Guerrera, who is the ugliest man in our sport today, apparently. Uh, Marty Giannetti, Kidman, Evan Courageous, Lenny Lane, Psychosis. Silver King, if he wins 12 more matches, he'll be upgraded to Golden King. Uh, Johnny Swinger, I've never heard of this guy. Zero out of 10 chance of winning. (laughs) And Villano 4, representing Villano's 1 through 62. Um, So Shivani tells us you can be eliminated by pinfall or by being thrown out of the ring top rope or otherwise, as long as your feet touch the floor. Um, being full of luchadors, they keep doing aerial moves that makes me feel really uneasy in the battle role. There's a reason you don't often see those sort of moves because feet and body parts flying around in a crowded ring can easily lead to injury. But as far as I'm aware, everyone came out of this scot-free. Um, El uh, Grio, we're told, uh, means the cricket in... Um, Spanish. He is uh, eliminated. I always got suspicious when there's a mystery masterman we've never seen before, but it turns out there's nothing to be suspicious about El Grio, it would seem. Uh, The crowd are largely quiet for this, apart from the odd high spot. And then the final four are Kidman, Hoovy, Ciclopay, and Psychosis. Psychosis pretty much eliminates himself by taking a bump over the top rope. Kidman then goes. It's down to Hoovy and Ciclopay. The crowd are behind Hoovy. He's clearly their favorite. Um, They stare down and then they shake hands um, and Hoovy curiously eliminates himself. Ciclopay then unmasks and reveals himself to really be Dean Malenko and the crowd go absolutely wild. El Grillo, it turns out, was the real Cyclope in a different costume. So at this point, we have got a molten hot crowd. The, this angle um, had been running for a good few months beforehand, then Malenko disappeared. Is that right, Brian?
0: Yeah, it, I think it happened earlier that year, because whenever I started watching week to week, I knew that M- Dean Malenko was something that uh, De Malenko versus Jericho was something that was going on, but I think he was already out of the company at that point. He had taken his ball. He's gone home. Uh, memory is telling me that's uh, the, the, the super brawl, maybe uncensored. whenever he lost uncensored, uncensored yes.
1: 98.
0: So, so whenever that happens, he's gone. You don't hear about Malenko anymore. Now it's the Chris Jericho show. So <laughs> to watch this live, it didn't have the same effect. I guess it would have had if I had been like watching for a full year, but to me, it still was an exciting moment because that's D Malenko for from WCW Nitro for the PlayStation. I know that guy.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So that was my fir- my first reveal of him. So I I was
2: excited. And because this was this was at the time, Liam, wasn't it, where where Jericho was was picking off all the other cruiserweights and he was taking souvenirs of people because he he was he came out and he was wearing um. He was wearing something that belonged to Prince Ikea, for example, when yep. he made those introductions. Hoovy's mask. He took,
1: And that's why Hoovy was a very happy co-conspirator in this. Hoovy was happy to get some revenge. And I believe, if, if memory serves me correctly, Dean would return the favour a few months later when Jericho managed to get the, uh, the Cruiserweight title back. Sorry if I've spoiled what's happening in a minute for anyone. When he gets the title back, he faces off with an unmasked Hoovy and... Milenko is the special referee and gets a bit more revenge. And that pretty much wraps the whole thing up. But here, right here, right now, you you had the the title match was uncensored 98. And the, the standout thing about that match was that Chris Jericho has won, from what I remember, pretty much clean. He'd, be, he'd been the hill antagonizing Dean and calling his father Boris Malenko and he did that, obviously he did the a 1004 holds thing like to, to mock the man of a thousand holds. Um, and all that antagonism before the match and then Malenko's lost the match and Gene Oakland's done one of his famous in-ring interviews. But this one was more, even more belligerent than your average Gene Oakland interview. And he's basically like tore into Malenko's performance and called him a bona fide loser. And he asked him, where does he go from here? And Malenko said, I'm going home and he left, and no one saw him since unsuccessful so this, uh, this is a two-month payoff, where there's nice. been complete radio silence, he's off house shows, he's off television, uh, he's getting mentioned by Jericho, who continues to antagonise him, and the commentators mention him, but only that they don't know where he is. So you don't you, you get the impression that He's, he's not leaving the company but you just don't know where it's happening and then obviously they've gone into this battle royal thing and they're trying to play a bit of Shekhov's gun I think a few people were anticipating the return here but no one could have anticipated just yeah. how good it came off this was this was up there with DDP as Lepaka this was amazing yes.
2: So um yeah, so Jericho comes through, the match begins, Milenko's laying the kicks into Jericho, Steve Austin style in the corner. Um Mike Tanay says we've never seen him so fired up before, and we certainly haven't. Hoovy's still at ringside cheering on Milenko. And and that just adds to this whole thing, as you've said, Liam, that you know, all the other cruiserweights hate Jericho um for what he's been doing to people in the division. Um, over the past few months, Milenko's in complete control till Jericho sidesteps Milenko charging in, drops him throat first onto the top rope. Um, Jericho goes for a lion tamer, but Malenko counts it by twisting around, grabbing the ankle. Milenko um, counters an attempted hurricane runner with a top rope gut buster, which uh, looks pretty sensational, especially bearing in mind it's 98 and these kind of spectacular moves aren't, aren't the norm yet. Um, He follows this up with the Texas Cloverleaf. The crowd are absolutely on their feet. Jericho taps. The crowd go wild. As I said, the conclusion to one of my favorite angles in WCW history. And I think it's fair to say that a a WCW crowd or even just an an American wrestling crowd have, have never cared so much about a Cruiserweight title match before or after.
0: Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I think Dean Malenko is just one of those people where I want to say that maybe he's just completely overlooked by a lot of people because he's so good around this time, and some of the stuff he's putting out there, uh, like you said, that super, what would you call that, the, the gutbuster movie he did, yeah. that, that's incredible, that is so cool. Even to 2019, you don't see that from anyone.
2: No, it was, it was a, a unique high spot, it really was.
0: I, I want to go back a little bit here. I want to ask Liam a question. Do you know who Johnny Swinger is? Go back to that cruiserweight battle royal. <laughs> I am aware of Johnny
1: Swinger because he resurfaced in ECW. He was in it?
0: ECW,
1: yeah. Simon Diamond and Swinger. I think if yes. if they didn't hit a wall, they would have been the next ECW tag champions, uh, I believe. And then um, for those people who are masochistic enough to watch early nwa tna they actually had a nwa tag title run where they traded the belts with america's most wanted oh and they would have uh, okay. been a great wcw tag team if they carried on wouldn't they
0: the only reason i wanted to just jump back there and uh, get the swinger back into the conversation is uh, he's currently in impact wrestling right now yes. so that is a thing that's going on Isn't that so strange? That's so weird to to think that. You're watching the pay-per-view from, it's 20 years ago, and the guy just recently signed with Impact Wrestling. I, I think that was something last month. So he is a, a current star, I guess, with the promotion.
1: Uh, I wouldn't say star. He's mostly been used in comedy sketches, I think. But um, <laughs> but but yeah, they they, they have had a, an, an alarming recruiting policy of, you know, they, they, there's certain ones you can understand to an extent, like RVD, Rhino, Tommy Dream were still doing tag matches over there. They had Disco Inferno show up for a couple of um, segments slash matches with Scarlet Bordeaux. Ah, uh, just the yeah, whole whole thing is very head scratching.
2: <laughs> but then, of course, uh, we've also got you know Chris Jericho, top of the tree in in AEW. So yeah, um, which um yeah we we've we touched on last week during our Nitro watch along. I don't know about you, Brian, but yeah, we've said AEW gives us some
0: some kind of WCW vibes to a degree. <laughs>
1: Positive <laughs> uh, ones as well.
0: Yes. I I, I love how the conversation is, you know, Johnny Swinger, Impact Wrestling, and then, you know, Chris Jericho, the current AEW World Heavyweight Champion. So, yeah, both of their careers are taking off in 2019, Uh, (laughs) skyrocketing. Uh, I haven't watched AEW, to be honest with you. we recently moved. I, once again, don't have cable television, so I have not touched it. I've seen the dark matches on YouTube, but I haven't really gotten into it yet. Can I offer one thing that may get you
1: to start watching it? There was a just a very very innocuous moment during the women's tag match on episode 2 of AEW Dynamite where uh, one of the women involved has hit a, a pump splash out of the corner, which most people now refer to, most wrestling fans refer to as a Vader bomb. And mm-hmm. that is exactly what either Jim Ross or Excalibur, or maybe both, have done on commentary. They've gone, "Oh, uh, Vader bomb for a two count," and Tony Schiavone, completely taken aback, has turned around and gone, "Is that what we're calling that now? Is that a Vader bomb?" And they went, "Yeah," and they said, and Tony said, "That is so cool," and it was <laughs> it was such a wholesome moment. It was, probably, it was a really good episode, but that was actually my favourite moment, a real hidden highlight. And it just shows that there is like an organic link to WCW, despite a, an 18-year gap. There, There is such a link there, it feels genuine. And it's something that TNA could seldom do, is provide that actual link to those, to those who enjoyed the alternative. And maybe they will find a few of those laps fans. Maybe they'll
0: do it. So Tony Schiavone was pretty much encased in ice after 2001. So (laughs) that they, uh, Conrad thawed him out. Now he's uh doing this commentary. You know, good on him. That that's cool. That's cool to hear. But uh, I guess bringing this back to D. uh, D DiMolengo's Texas Cloverleaf. Uh, one of my favorite maneuvers because it was so easy to slap on my li- younger brother. It, oh, is yes. just, <laughs> it is incredibly easy to apply. It, you can't mess it up, unlike the, uh, I guess, the sharpshooters. Got a couple tricky parts to it if you really aren't paying attention. So uh, it's legitimate hold. It looks cool. Uh, D. Malenko, another one of my favorites, just like Benoit. It was just, like I said earlier, the video games is what brought me back into watching wrestling. So he was a guy that I loved as well.
2: But, yeah, this this also, one one thing, and we we touched on it briefly earlier on, but WCW's failure to push Jericho any higher than that sort of Cruiserweight mid-card level, because heel jericho at this point in time as as the crowd reaction showed he was absolutely on fire at this point and surely you know as a heel as well he could have cheated his way to wins over some higher ranked wrestlers and just you
0: know edged himself up the card a little bit it's that glass ceiling i mean they Like what we were saying earlier, that there was a set group of guys that would wrestle each other, and they never would shake these uh, groups, shake them them up. It was basically recycling your main event guys over and over and over again. Uh, I, I think it even recently, Kevin Sullivan's talked about this on his podcast, that he had Jericho and Raven, and he loved them both, but he can't put them on these main event matches, because when you look at the cards he has, he's got guys like a Savage. he's got a sting. He's got a flair. He's got Hogan in his mind. He's basically, I've got these proven main event stars. How can I put these other guys that are unknown to the general public against these other stars? You know, these are my main event guys. I I can't just play them against one another because they're nobodies like who's going to believe it. And, that's that's his mentality. That's the way him and Eric Bischoff really looked at things. That you are a main event star. That is where your your lot in life is going to be forever and ever and ever. You're not never going to move down to face anyone below you. And I think even as a whole, whenever that did happen, I think there was a lot of uh, weird, uh, kick, uh, weird responses for some of the main event guys. I don't want to get too far into it, but like 2001, there's a lot of interviews that are out there that you could tell that as great of a guy sting is apparently i don't think he liked working with vampiro because he just felt like vampiro wasn't on his level uh the same thing with hogan and billy kidman there was that type of mentality between the main event stars and the mid card so it's it, i would love to have jericho on the main event scene in 1998 but just i it, it, you, you don't see it and then what by next year he's sparring with the rock
2: absolutely yeah the very next year 1999 goes to WWF and as you say the very first segment he's in is interrupting the rock
0: and it's it's so strange that mentality they just really locked down all these great guys from really blossoming into something uh, major the Goldberg thing that was just an accident for yeah. him to be a main event star you know uh, Benoit could have easily have done that but it just they never gave him a chance
2: and then you, you, you know, again, you look at the the group that became known as the Radicals in WWF, and how, you know, they joined the company and immediately went into prominent positions within the company, and um, it, it proved that it could be done.
1: Yeah, it's funny how two two guys who were very much prominent in the company circa 1992, when they're guys on their books such as Vinny Vegas and the Diamond Stud, are actually wondering how they're supposed to make matches pitting the Ravens and the Jerichos and the Benoits against the established main eventers. How do we we put these guys against big stars like Hall and Nash? You know, it's like they weren't like these these comedy mid-carders several years ago, and guy, guys like Bischoff in the AWA and Sullivan in Florida will go far back enough to remember when even guys like Randy Savage weren't main eventers, so it's incredible that they actually give us that fucking horseshit in a public <laughs> interview and expect us to buy it, the fact was and we've covered this at length, we, we weren't flies on the wall, Dean and I but there's enough evidence, like over 20 years Kevin Sullivan was a gopher booker. His his whole job was that he would cave to Hogan. He could he could do the actual grunt job of being a booker so that Hogan didn't actually have to put matches together. But Hogan got to call the shots. So that was his function, and that is that is completely what those though was all about, was keeping that segregation there, because they didn't want to share the paydays, even though those paydays were going to dry up. You'd think you'd, you'd share it to keep it going, but apparently not. But yeah, that's a, I, think, I think all three of us could really go headlong into that. But what I'm hoping is us, us getting it out of the way now means we'll be able to appreciate the matches to come. Or not knowing what's
2: coming, and, and you know something that that I've just thought one of a story that we have mentioned many times before, one of our favorite WCW stories, but it absolutely completely illustrates what Brian has just been saying. The story I've said before that I was told by someone who was there at the time, who shall remain nameless, um, where Randy Savage turns up to the the arena for a Nitro taping, looks on the board. Uh, there's a whiteboard where they've written that he is facing Disco Inferno in what I guess would be a typical Randy Savage TV match that he wins in a few minutes. And he just, because he's got creative control, he looks at the board, just goes, nope, and rubs Disco Inferno's name off the board and, walk- <laughs> and then walks back to his dressing room. And he did that because he could, because he had creative control and the lunatics were running the asylum.
1: Yeah, it's a favorite soundbite of ours, isn't it? Nope.
0: Nope.
2: <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so back to the pay-per-view. We then go to Vinnie Maccam. I, I guess we need something to bring the crowd down after that. We go to Vinnie Maccam, which is on a helicopter in the sky. Doug Dillinger comes out to check on a white limo that is parked up on the street. Shivani comes out with the line that if Jim Ross comes out of the limo carrying some bags, then we know Vince is inside. Uh, best not to remind me of that line, now you're in AEW together, Tony. Um, and Shivani says, we're not going to waste any more time with this my thoughts exactly because the cage has been lowered for the bowery death match between raven and diamond dallas page so the cage has got a roof on it it can't be escaped from the only way to win is to leave your opponent unable to answer a 10 count um there are two bins full of weapons inside the cage one in each corner uh raven comes out with no music accompanied by four security guards with their faces covered dressed all in black um, it starts off fast and intense from Paige, He's got his ribs taped up, but within minutes he's had his head rammed into a bin in the cage and he's selling like a good baby face and peril should DDP comes back. He tries to hogtie Raven up, looping a rope over the cage roof. Um, Raven beats the 10 count, but then gets a VCR smashed over his head, which again is not comfortable to watch with 2019 eyes. Um, It's now being contested at a very slow pace in front of a very quiet crowd. They're still processing the previous match, I think. It's mainly just weapon shots by this point. Uh, Raven goes for a sleeper. DDP reverses into the corner. Referee Billy Silverman gets squashed between the wrestlers and the bin. He's out for the count himself. This prompts the rest of the flock to come out with a set of bolt cutters. But Van Hammer emerges from nowhere with a stop sign and takes out the flock. Um, the seemingly useless Riot Squad security sent him back. Then two of the Riot Squad security themselves get inside the cage and start attacking DDP and they unmask as Horace Hogan and Kidman. So immediately after having Milenko disguised under a mask, they do the exact same thing in this match. Um, Raven then DDT's page, which the cameraman somehow manages to move his camera away from. Um, DDP, sorry, Raven hits DDP with a diamond cutter. DDP just about beats account he then hits Raven with a diamond cutter of his own. Both men are down and Paige just about gets to his feet before the 10 count to a, a muted response from a crowd who don't entirely seem to be sure that he's won the match or not. Paige leaves through the crowd as he often does. Um, post-match, another Riot Squad member handcuffs Kidman to the ropes. He then gets more cuffs out and handcuffs Raven to the cage with one set on each hand, um, which is you know, basically a copy of the famous Tommy Dreamer Raven angle from ECW with any of the heat um the riot squad member unmasks as mortis and then unmasks his mortis mask to reveal canyon who isn't really identified yet because he hasn't wrestled as canyon in wcw for a long long time um he then nails raven with an unprotected chair shot in front of a pretty silent crowd um it, I I really wanted to enjoy this match, but it, it just I just couldn't get into it. It just seemed overbooked and overcomplicated to me.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with you. There were some fun little moments in there. There's some actual scary moments in there. That whole bull rope thing that came into play where he starts to hang Raven, and then he jumps on the other side, hooks over the cage, and starts actually hanging him, and they're going back and forth. That looked kind of uh, that looked unsafe. I I, I I, don't really like these type of rope deals in wrestling. That always kind of unnerves me a bit. I don't, I'm not too sure why. But uh, overall, uh, Chris Canyon makes his debut on wrestling. I, exactly what you said. This whole thing, to me, looking back nowadays, it's just, it's just a copy of ECW. Everything here, exactly what you just mentioned. This is them trying to recreate ECW. Uh, Back whenever I watched it live, yeah, I I probably was going crazy for this because that would have been my first foray into anything that was uh, extreme, anything that had the hardcore death matches. I I didn't know anything about a a new Jack. I didn't know know anything about ECW. I didn't know anything about New Jersey wrestling. None of that was a thing that I was aware of. So. It was kind of cool, I guess, back in the day to see that. But nowadays, yeah, this is definitely just a rip-off. But it was okay. There was there were some things here and there that were pretty cool. I wish that maybe they would have gone a little bit further and got some blood going. Maybe that would have got the crowd into it a little bit more. But you're right. The ending, the way it happens, it doesn't seem like Paige wins. It looks like it's a double count-out because he wasn't technically on his feet, but they gave him the win. I... I was kind of just wanting a little bit more there, but it was okay.
2: Mm. I mean, the the thing with the the original um ECW angle, I was a huge ECW fan at the time, and the the whole thing with with Dreamer and Raven was it was it was a piece of booking masterclass from Paul Heyman because this feud, this angle, went on for. I think the best part of two years, and without without Dreamer ever getting a victory over Raven until right at the very end. And he would be getting more and more frustrated, and more and more people would be joining the cast of characters. And the one thing that it had been given that this hadn't been given, and, and things, you know, as, as wrestling got more and more competitive between the two companies, the element of just giving something time disappeared, and everything got rushed, and everything got hot shotted, and this was, this was like a, a yeah an ECW tribute act with with a, a fraction of the heat.
1: Yeah, as you said, Dean, the Raven Tommy Dreamer feud with all those supporting characters that was the key to it, because Raven and Tommy Dreamer, from what I remember, didn't wrestle three times in three months on major events. They wouldn't keep consecutively having these blow-off matches or alleged blow-off matches. Um, you would have guys like the uh, the Bruise Brothers get involved and uh primetime Brian Lee. And that would actually be a, a, a big fight for Dreamer. And that would be uh, a good three or four months of the Raven feud. It'd still be considered part of the Raven feud per se. I remember there was a really good match between things Raven and Stevie Richards against the Pitbulls for the for the tag titles. They had all sorts of overbooking, but it was all done where it meant something, uh, yeah. and it, and it paid off things. And a, as a result, these sort of things kept the few bubbling over. This was just a, a massive mess. And I, I want to make it clear: I like Raven, I like DDP, I liked most of their feud. I love Triple Jeopardy at Uncensored '98. That was a great freeway match with Benoit. Um, But yeah, this match was a total mess. You could imagine any road agent or producer worth their salt just taking a big red marker to three quarters of whatever's regurgitated up on this booking sheet. Uh, The fact you've got like a VCR to the head being used as a weapon can't keep someone down. Diamond cutter can apparently. Uh, As Brian said, lynching in the match. We've got all these unmaskings, uh, as you mentioned, Dean, that that really take the effect away from what we just had in the previous match. Just, just so much happening, and you're not supposed to, or you're not able to, to really take any of it in. As you said, who, who is Canyon at this point? You know, uh, m- most of the stuff with the FLOG members, if I remember correctly, uh, especially with Horace, was was uh, is is he, isn't he? You know, yeah. guys like Horace and Riggs were were kicked out of the group, then brought back in every week to the point where maybe it was part of the running joke, but it makes it hard to follow. And this was the the resulting mess, and it it wasn't good. I remember watching it, uh, thanks to a friend back in the day and saying to myself is it because i was like you guys i was into the whole attitude era and more weapons this remember watching this i'm thinking to myself is it is it just me or is this a bit naff like is it really trying to do something and failing at it and you know that sort of thing still went down with the majority of people but then i, I read a few, a few years later i got into um a few online writers. Once I had more access to the internet, and one of them was uh, Scott Keith, uh, who I always liked for being really opinionated on on a lot of things. Yeah, I remember writing, reading his write-up of the the Barry Death Cage match, and he just let it have both barrels. And I thought to myself, it was just so nice to see that it wasn't just me. So yeah, it's such a shame because the majority of their feud was really cool, but this is just. Such a mess. It's a it's a forty pound solution to a ten pound problem.
0: <laughs> the PW Torch a couple months ago, prior to this, would mention something in passing how people are getting in Chris Benoit's ear that Diamond Dallas Page and Raven are only using him to get great matches between them you know between them. I guess it was that triangle match from a couple months ago. So maybe there's something to it. Once you take Benoit out of this uh, this formula. And you have Raven versus Diamond Dallas Page. Even though this is supposed to be a pretty heavy-duty death match between the two, it just doesn't really hit. It was better at Spring Stampede, which would
1: be the match where Raven took the US title from Page, and he lost it to Goldberg the next night on Nitro. But that match was was better. It weren't as good as Triple Jeopardy, but that was good. And this was supposed to be, you know, the title's out of the way. This is the end of the feud. But they've just put too many bells and whistles on it.
2: Back to the pay-per-view. We go back to Vinnie MacCam. We have a security guard checking fans coming in while holding a sheet with badly photocopied pictures of DX, X Pac, Austin of um, as well as security cameras covering door entrances. Uh, we go back to our internet location for another wooden promo by Saturn who sounds like he's off his face probably because he's off his face at the time. Um, Match number six, Ultimo Dragon v. Eddie Guerrero with Chavo Guerrero Jr. Um, If Dragon wins, then Chavo will get his freedom um, because at this moment in time, he is accompanying Eddie against his will, would that be fair to say?
0: Yeah. Yeah, at at this point, that was the the ongoing storyline where Chavo was his slave I, I I guess like I I can't remember what exactly what the terms that happened right before this but at this point yes he is just pretty much a tag along and Eddie Guerrero has been constantly abusing his younger nephew and forcing him to pretty much be his manservant here I'm sitting at a table feed me Chavo uh, make sure to do uh, I, I honestly I, I can't remember where it starts, but this is that same era.
1: Yeah, it's it started with Chavo being a like a clean cut rookie cruiserweight. Uh, And obviously they've got a few of those on their books. And I suppose to to try and help his relative out, Eddie's managed to sort out where they do this angle together. Eddie turned heel with 97. He had that great run as Cruiser champion, that amazing match with Ray at Halloween Havoc 97. And post-Cruiserweight title, he is doing this thing where he doesn't like that his nephew is this happy-go-lucky smiling guy. So he's trying to corrupt him. And, he, yeah, he won that match. Was it un, maybe Uncensored? I'm not sure exactly where it was. Maybe Spring Stampede. That uh, that gave him the right to make Chavo his protege, whether he liked it or not. Uh, and I think that involved Ultimo Dragon as well, if I remember correctly. Oh,
2: okay.
1: Uh, I'll, have to, I'll have to look up the exact details. But it is a bit of a triangle between the three. And Ultimo Dragon's trying to, to win his freedom. So yeah. to speak, but uh, being being forced into this servitude is, is slowly turning Charvo cuckoo. Uh, and we got to cover the glorious climax of that at Bachelor Beach 98 in one of our first episodes.
2: Is that the one where he shaves his own head?
1: Yeah. So by that yes. point, he's gone proper cuckoo loca. But this is as it's starting to develop. And it's, uh, yeah. I always enjoyed this storyline once it got going.
2: See this. This is the kind of angle that you just wouldn't be able to do in 2019. Yeah, we're we're talking about some sort of enforced slavery and, and mental health issues. It would just never <laughs> it would never play out these days. But um, Eddie is. I have to say as well, Eddie Guerrero is looking at his absolute sleazy best uh, here with the long greasy mullet and just the. St- permanent sneer on his face. Um, as good a baby face as he was, who's also absolutely magnificent as a heel. Um, we start the match off with some exchanges of mat work, but the crowd don't seem to be paying too much attention, which is really sad to see. Um, if you look at the ringsiders facing the hard cam, they're talking with each other. Um, if, if this was the modern era, they'd probably all be on their phones. Um, they're then popping for a fat bloke, taking his shirt off. Um, All the while, you've got two of the greatest technical wrestlers of their time in the ring. Um, Guerrero is in charge for the first five minutes of the match, but he's keeping the pace deliberate and keeping things on the mat rather than in the air, which is what Shivani points out on commentary. Um... The tables turn when Eddie gets crotched on the top rope. Dragon hits the acai moonsault, but he doesn't have a good landing himself. He follows this up with a great-looking spinning torture rack and a picture-perfect moonsault for a two-count. Guerrero then counters another top rope move with a tornado DDT, which Shivani points out is the signature move of Chavo. Guerrero then misses a frog splash. Dragon gets a two with a Mahistral cradle, and the the pace is picking up as we move towards the finish. Um, Dragon puts Eddie in a, a dragon sleeper which uh, Eddie then reverses but puts his feet on the ropes for added leverage Charvo jumps up on the apron knocks Eddie's feet off the ropes they argue, dragon attempts to hit Eddie with a spinning kick but Eddie moves and dragon hits Charvo instead Eddie then hits a brain buster, followed by a frog splash for the win in 11 minutes. And Chavo, as you said, Liam, to emphasize the uh, the effect this is having on his sanity, Chavo then starts attacking Dragon after the match. Um, Eddie drops to his knees, dares Chavo to hit him. Um, and, and this post-match angle, the crowd seemed to react to more than anything they did during the match. But to me, great match just spoilt by a crowd that weren't really into it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think your recap, you had a lot more excitement for this match than I really did because it just didn't really go anywhere for me. It, it, it's kind of terrible because you, these are two legends, two absolute wrestling legends, but I don't think this is something that would be put on a best of list between either guy. And like you said earlier in the match, the large obese man in the front row who takes off his shirt gets the crowd's attention and they start cheering for him. Meanwhile, you've got Eddie Guerrero and the Ultimo Dragon wrestling in the ring. That It's insane to look and see how this happened, but this is 1998 WCW. It, it's a terrible thing to see, but that's what, I don't know, that's just the way it was back then. I didn't really care too much for it, it just didn't really get into that next level. That this probably could have gone into.
1: It's also worth noting really. That uh, they haven't been done any favours. By the structure of the card. They've been put in what most people refer to now. As the death slot. They have followed that um, that load of fuck. In the cage quite frankly. Uh, and when, when you do that. Sort of a, a, a of a mind screw. On the fans. And, and just load so much on them. It, it does take them out of it a little bit. Because he, as bad as it was. It does take a lot of that energy out of a crowd and as we've discussed many times covering other pay-per-views the idea of the of the booker is is you've got to manage that that energy level of the crowd you you want to try and manipulate you want to get the the highs but then bring it down for a controlled low so you can bring it back up again and they just punctured it with that with that cage match and as a result the crowd aren't here the crowd the crowd need a piss they need some snacks they need a pretzel they need to take their shirt off in the front row
0: (laughs) they need to do
1: they need to do anything else but watch more wrestling they need a breather and it's a shame they were wheeled out for this spot
0: could it it also be could it also be uh, excuse me i don't want to run over you there but uh could it also be that ultimo dragon as a babyface that's is a seemingly weird idea to think about, considering that he was always the evil foreigner in WCW with Sonny Ono. Was he ever really seen as a good guy in any other match, any other big match? Well, we have looked back at several pay-per-views
1: on this podcast, and obviously between the three of us, we've watched... Most WCW events and I think we can all agree that most of his activity in WCW was very nondescript. We know he's an amazing performer who can go but I think the one that sticks out for me Dean, is when we had Finn on for Bash at the Beach 97 and he and Chris Jericho just kind of did a match. Mm. And here he is with Eddie Guerrero just doing a match. match, And it's proof positive that having elite wrestlers in the ring doesn't guarantee you a great match. It needs extra ingredients to the recipe because two world-class wrestlers can go in that ring and just do a choreograph that doesn't inspire. And Ultimo Dragons, unfortunately, seem to make that his calling card in WCW.
2: Do you know one thing I was thinking about, and I don't, I don't know if this would work, but had they swapped this match with with our opener of Benoit and Finlay, would things have been any different? Would the crowd have cared more about Eddie Guerrero's match? Would the crowd have shat on the Benoit and Finlay match? Uh,
1: I, I personally think the, the shots between Finlay and Benoit would have forced a bit more of a ooh and R ah reaction out of the crowd, but they still would have been lacking energy. They wouldn't have got into it as much as they did where it was in the, the first match slot. But yeah, so it's something like a colour by numbers performance by a dragon would surely be enhanced if it was in that first match because the fans would have been pumped. They would have been lapping as long as it wasn't terrible, you lap it up with a spoon really in that yeah. first match. Just want you just want the performance to give you something enjoyable, and you will make it seem even better than that because you are buzzing that the show has begun.
2: Yeah, cool. Okay, so um, we briefly go to see a picture of a dressing room door that's been set aside for Vince McMahon with Ugh. his name star on it. Yep, we're still going on about that. And then it's time for our WCW United States title match between Saturn and the champion Goldberg. So Goldberg is apparently... 87 and 0 at this point. Saturn has told the flock to stay away as he's on his own for this match. Um, Shivani tells us that Goldberg can really wrestle, Um, okay? Um, So, Goldberg hits a big clothesline and a pair of impressive-looking press slams, and he's running around like a slightly less offensive Ultimate Warrior, Um, Saturn gets out the ring Goldberg follows him out and then gets caught by Saturn as he gets back into the ring, Saturn takes over the match goes outside, Saturn rams Goldberg's shoulder into the ring post Um, the crowd are clearly not interested in watching Goldberg sell for anyone because they're now very quiet uh, and not in the good way of winning Goldberg on just not interested, basically. Um, Saturn stays on top of Goldberg for a good few minutes because after all, this is a US title match and things have got to look competitive. He grabs a chair, uses it as a Sabu style springboard to dropkick Goldberg in the back and knock him into the corner. He goes for it again with Goldberg now facing him and in, in what is clearly telegraphed gets intercepted with a big spear. Goldberg miraculously recovers, hits his jackhammer and retains the title in a mercifully short seven minutes and one second. Um, the wonderful WCW producers then show us a replay of Goldberg nearly dropping Saturn on his head. So, did its purpose, I suppose, of just the insanely popular Goldberg at this point getting another victory?
0: At this point, I was a huge WCW uh, Goldberg fan. and I'm sorry, Goldberg fan in WCW. The idea of the streak, I came into it, I guess, midway through. It just immediately was something that I gravitated towards. It's immediately something I picked up on. Being, uh, I guess, a newish wrestler, wrestling fan, I had never really seen this undefeated uh, a, a streak. I, I, I guess I didn't really have an understanding of what exactly this is going to lead towards. I know there's going to be something big, but what exactly was going to be the thing that kills off Goldberg? Is it going to be Perry Saturn? No, it's not going to be him. I put my money on the giant finally being the one to beat the guy that killed Goldberg, but obviously that didn't happen. So in this match with Goldberg coming out, and showcasing new moves it was more than the spears more than the jackhammer he was he he was showing his i guess his judo skills he was showing his military press slam into that front i guess military slam to that body slam thing he used to do like to me this was incredible this guy was above and beyond a superhuman this guy thinks wrestling is real i love this guy i i still watching nowadays I still get excited because it's just a part of me that it's like that pure wrestling fan inside of me that really wants to believe that these guys are actually killing each other. And in this match, it looks like they're really killing each other. So even (laughs) in 2019, watching this stuff again, it's kind of hard to put into words, but it was exciting to revisit this because like I said, this was a huge thing for me. Goldberg was the man and I had his shirt, I had the uh, I had the toys, I had everything about it, even though I was you know, 13, 14 years old, I guess at this point, I was still buying the Goldberg action figures because I thought he was so cool.
1: Yeah, I've got to agree with that. That military press power slam move was just so sweet when he nailed that. That was one of my favorite moves. And Goldberg versus Saturn, it was just a great pairing. They wrestled at Spring Stampede the previous month, and I believe that match set goldberg up for the u.s title challenge that came the following night and it speaks volumes about how they regard saturn at this stage that they would have him back in there with goldberg even though he lost the first match so this is this is a step up he's now u.s champion they're trying to portray him as as more than just a squash match guy they're also trying to portray saturn as a a serious guy as well i really like that pre-match interview it reminded me of the of the sort of serious promos that are done so well in places like ufc in this and age where someone will sit down and just talk seriously about how much they want to win uh, and he, he says about how he doesn't want the flock involved so and so and they're sowing the seeds for him leaving raven because the idea is is he sees so much better than raven and being his henchman in the flock It's quite cool. You think of all the Hollywood movies that have this this big bad who's actually quite cowardly, and the main physical threat to the hero is in his second-in-command. They see a lot in Steven Seagal films where there's like this this guy who's almost his equal in fighting, but he's actually the henchman of the actual reason for the terrorist threat etc etc and so saturn is is that guy and he's we're going to find out over the summer that he's getting sick of raven so i like the storyline thing here the match yeah the match was decent it it wasn't amazing it wasn't uh thrilling in that you knew who's going to win as you guys said but uh, yeah i i dug the whole deal what was going on there it was perfectly acceptable stuff on the on the underneath and both guys are moving on to different things it does make me wonder though you think of um there there are other examples aren't there dean in wrestling of of wrestlers who uh, it's like right we have this plan for you you're going to go off and do something bigger and better but first we just need you to lose this match and that's mm-hmm. where that's a position Saturn found found himself in. In a, they had a plan for him, at least for a few months, because it didn't last forever. In six months from this, he'd be wearing a dress. Um, in the short term, they had a plan for him, but for the meantime, it's just like, yeah, we need just to lose Goldberg again.
2: Yeah, I mean, normally that situation comes about, you know, before you go to a different promotion or or something, but uh, as opposed to an in-house internal move. But yeah, it was, as Brian said, it was a bit of a curious matchup in that Saturn had already lost to Goldberg. Goldberg was unbeaten. There wasn't a single person in that building. Um, who thought that Saturn could win you know if if perry Saturn's own mother was sat in that venue she'd be cheering for goldberg i think but um yeah it as you know goldberg was the man at the moment you needed to give him his his bit of time on there um he was a ratings winner in the in the war with nitro versus versus raw i guess um okay so um, we now have Michael Buffer out next, so it's clearly time for the uh, for the real main eventers to come out. That we've we've uh, stepped past that glass ceiling, and here come the, here come the big boys to play. Um, but first of all, here comes Eric Bischoff, and he's dressed to fight. Uh, Buffer's introduction of Bischoff includes this gem. This man has single-handedly built a wrestling empire like no other in the world, Um, although Tony Schiavone's reaction informs us not to take this as gospel. Buffer then introduces the, well, the non-appearance, I guess, of Vince McMahon. It's still very odd to hear him... Um, or the WWF for that matter mentioned by name on the WCW pay-per-view. Um, everyone knows Vince won't show up, but this continues for a good while. Buffer introduces McMahon again. Still no one turns up. Um, Bischoff speaks to referee Mickey J, who says that he'll have to start the match and count to 10, seeing as this is apparently an official WCW stroke NWO match. Um, although I did think about this, and if this was an official match, surely then Vince would have had to have signed a contract for it, which he obviously hasn't done, but I'm probably putting far too much thought into that. Um, The bell rings. Bischoff is declared the winner by forfeit and disqualification as the cameraman shows us various anti-Vince signs in the crowd. Um, At least it's over and done with, and let's hope that this doesn't give Tony Khan any ideas, eh? (laughs)
0: I don't know. I don't know uh, what Tony Khan's background is, so I don't know. Maybe he can take a Vince McMahon in 2019 in a real fight. Who knows? (laughs) But thankfully, AEW so far
1: is sticking to their initial promise of being proactive, not reactive. And I I really hope they stick to that because we really don't want to see crap like this in,
0: in the 2020s. I think it was kind of funny. I, I I enjoy this. I enjoy the cocky Bischoff attitude. It's just funny to watch this nowadays and just think about what if that actually would happen? What if Vince McMahon man himself showed up to this pay-per-view? Could he have actually taken on Bischoff? And I think my money would be on this man. You know, he was bigger. He was stronger. I know Bischoff has his karate gear and he's this supposed black belt you know he was trained by ernest the cat miller so he's oh, got that on his
1: side he, he was yeah i mean for, for me that makes it a no-brainer i mean i, I suppose you've got to be into the, the fighting arts a little bit to understand the gravitas but honestly in a real fight eric bischoff would have destroyed him because he was trained and vince was
0: not oh what are you talking about no there's no way i honestly i can't Agree with that. I think that's ridiculous. I think Vince would have rushed them and that would be it. That'd be it, just be immediate grounded pound. I mean, you could compare this to I forgot who said this, but on a recent podcast I listened to, someone laughed at this conversation the idea of a Vince versus Eric in a shoot fight. And their reaction was, Yeah, all that karate shit didn't do well against Ric Flair backstage on Raw that one night where, you know, Ric Flair took him down. So if Ric Flair can take down Eric Bischoff in a real fight, I think Vince McMahon would have murdered Eric Bischoff on live WCW pay-per-view. Okay, this this sounds like a Twitter poll. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask though, is it, this is the uh,
1: Ric Flair who, by all accounts, he he like rushed up to Bischoff, all angry and pumped up and stuff. Uh, and had a pop at a guy who had basically just arrived and wanted to keep his job. Yes, absolutely. The same, the one and the same. Yeah, because if they're if they're having an actual fight, there's only one winner there as well. Absolutely not. Ric Flair would take him down. I I. <laughs> Oh I, what, man, I you you I, probably I, you probably think a Scott Steiner could beat
0: a Kurt Angle as well, don't you? Oh, oh, absolutely. You kidding me? The Steiner recliner. <laughs> oh, The Steiner recliner is an absolute beast. There's no way anyone could get out of that once it's locked on. Is that, yeah. that there's no question. But Scott Eric DeBush- Steiner
2: would win because he'd bring his pet tiger with him. Okay. <laughs>
0: But Eric Bischoff, like, I, I don't know. I, yes, he supposedly has a black belt, but we had, we've never seen it. We've never seen his actual fighting s- skills. Uh, I, I think there's a promo where he shows his uh, karate kicks and takes on a couple guys that, you know, he paid to do fall. So it basically was uh stuntman doing, like, Power Rangers stunts for him, flipping around the ring like he's just a crazy karate man. So that's, as far as I know, that's the only time we've ever seen his karate skills in play there might have been a wwe match where he wore the gi i, I slightly remember that but I, I don't know how good of an actual fighter he is
2: there was starcade 97 which is actually our very first podcast where he uh takes on Larry Zabisco and he's he's done up in his karate gi. oh
0: that was
1: rotten
2: and it was yeah it was rotten. That but he foreign an throw...
1: object that flew out of his slipper
2: Yes, but he did throw a good kick, okay. that, I, I, I think, let's let's put a Twitter poll up. Let's see what the Twitterverse thinks. Oh, if, who would have won a legit fight in 1998 between Eric Bischoff and Vince McMahon? Yes,
0: 1998, uh, roided out of his mind, Vince McMahon. He <laughs> killed Bischoff. He would eat a, probably 10 kicks. He wouldn't even feel it at all until he grabbed him, and that'd be it. It'd, it'd, it'd be over.
2: Marvelous. Right, we we will see what the uh, we'll see what the rest of the world thinks of that. Okay, match number eight is uh, with Roddy Piper as special guest referee. It's Bret Hart, the Randy Savage. It's the first ever meeting of these two on pay per view. Uh, Buffer introduces Bret Hart as wearing black and purple. You know those famous colours of Bret Hart, black and purple. Who the fuck writes these introductions for? Is it is it Buffer himself, or is there someone? Writing this shit for him, D-
1: I don't. Dean, D- D- I have to interject. This has just suddenly reminded me. Given, given the the, the mentions you've made of Buffer's working WCW in the past, and to be clear, I, I'm not accusing you of hating Buffer, but I know you're you're not a huge fan of his autopilot style uh, announcements and going through the motions. It did remind me this particular one of of uh, Anchor Ron Burgundy. He will say whatever you put on the <laughs>
2: teleprompter. Go fuck yourself, Sandy Aiko. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah we've got this is i I, this this, we we need to dig into this we need to find out did michael buffer write his own introductions for wcw or did he have some some schlub writing them for him and just passing him whatever
1: oh come on Um, you know the answer what do you reckon he he had no creative input whatsoever. They put a card in his hand. They put a huge amount of money in his bank account, <laughs> and he walked out there. Uh, we had this this guy when pencil was on the sheet. Said uh, Michael Buffer was one of the nicest men he's met. He 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 didn't like big time the people backstage. He he would talk to people. I've actually had a conversation with Michael Buffer myself, which was at David Hay versus uh, Derek Chisora at Upton oh, yeah. Park back in the day, and i can say the same he you know if you approach him and speak to him or you find yourself needing to speak to him for any reason um he's a nice enough guy pretty pretty basic standard what you have from people but yeah as far as his job he was going through the motions he didn't care about wrestling it was a it was a considerable paycheck for him
0: (laughs) (laughs) i love the idea of michael buffer watching just tapes and Writing down all these notes for every one of these main event matches, trying to understand, you know, who who is this Bret Hart guy, the yeah. Hitman Bret Hart? Uh, writing down all the little notes he has. At, at least at this point in time, he actually said his name correctly. He didn't call him Bret the Hitman Clark, and I was kind of <laughs> listening to see if that was the time, you know, this was the the, the pay per view where that happened. But no, he he did okay. He didn't mangle anyone's name, so it was all right. I, I liked Michael Buffer.
2: Well, you know, everyone seems to think he was a nice enough bloke. Oh, yeah, that's enough for me. But <laughs> we, we've had this discussion before. I don't I, I don't think you needed Michael Buffer. But anyway, we won't go over that again. Um, so, um, Brett Hart starts out on the uh, intensive offense, working over Savage's lower back and ribs, both areas of the body that gets stretched out by the sharpshooter, although this fact is missed by all three commentators in the booth. And I know. I, I observed. It just seems to me Savage is starting to look old at this point. He's aged 45. He's got the the least subtle dye job on his hair since the glory days of Mick McManus. Uh, look that one up. American fans, British Hall of Famer. Um, the match spills to the outside where Savage narrowly avoids getting hit with the metal ring steps. Um, The match continues, they go over the rail and into the crowd, which was a staple of WWF main events of this time with Steve Austin, so therefore it also has to happen here. Um, They make their way back to ringside, where Savage slams Hart on the floor before rolling him back into the ring. Hart turns the tide of the match with a well-placed kick to Savage's knee, which is in a brace. Um, Shivani mentioned in commentary that he's just had word Scott Scott Hall has arrived for his match tonight which happens to be next Um, Hart continues to work over Savage's knee he's absolutely dominating no-selling Savage's weak punches from a grounded position he nails a textbook pile driver that Brian Adams should have Watch out to do before his match with Lex Luger earlier this evening. Um, But Savage just kicks out in time as Hart complains that Piper counted too slowly. Hart misses a middle rope elbow drop. This gives Savage an opening to go on the offense. Uh, A suplex sets Hart up. Savage climbs to the top rope for the big elbow and the crowd are on their feet to a man. He hits his signature move, but he lands badly on his injured knee and he can't make the cover. When he finally does, Hart's had enough time to kick out at two. Hart then recovers, puts Savage in the sharpshooter as Miss Elizabeth runs down into the ring. Piper tries to send her out while Hart takes advantage and low blows Savage before smacking Piper from behind, sending him to the canvas. Um, We then see that Hart had brass knuckles on when he hit Piper, Savage grabs them from Hart and puts them on his own hand. But then Hulk Hogan, who uh, as as um, Shivani tells us wasn't even booked on this show, that um, Hulk Hogan uh, runs down and attacks Savage from ringside, taking out his knee from behind. Um, Hart puts on the sharpshooter again. Piper recovers from getting hit in the back of the head with some brass knucks, and Hart wins the match. But of course, only thanks to Hulk Hogan, because everything has to revolve around him. And in case WCW hadn't learned anything from the past, the decision of this
0: match was overturned on Nitro the next night. So we had Brass Knuckles, we had Miss Elizabeth, and Hogan at the end, just as massive interference. Plus Roddy Piper as the special guest referee. There was just so much happening in this match I wanted a little bit more. I wanted, you know, Bret Hart versus Macho Man to be a five-star classic, but it just was just another dud. And that's just the way Bret Hart's WCW career really was. Honestly, looking back at this, it's kind of strange to see how this was the start of the Bret Hart and NWO Hollywood angle where he was just kind of an associate with them, but he didn't really wear the colors. He never really was out there too often with them. I kind of wish we saw a Bret Hart black and white gear. I, I kind of wish we went all in on that, but I, I, it, it's kind of confusing why that ever happened because whenever Bret Hart went into WCW in the late ni- uh, late 97, the magazines have him talking about wanting revenge on Hogan, specifically for the whole Yokozuna mess. Mm. The magazines were, he had his own little column. That's the way it's written that he's there specifically to get his match against Hogan and to be the champion, he wants to prove himself and he wants to go against Hogan. He's got him in his sights. That, to me, was the whole idea of him jumping. So here we are, a little bit, less, uh, a little bit more than half a year later, and now he's just one of Hogan's cronies. It just kind of sucks.
1: Oh, yeah, that that whole fear. Oh. So Savage won the belt, didn't he, uh, uh, Spring Stampede from Sting? If I get off Sting as fast as possible, heaven... Heaven forbid that we have Sting fresh off what should have been a proper win at Starcade 97, being the proper top guy that the fans were desperate to make him. Uh, and then the next night, he loses it to Hogan, thanks to Brett's hill turn. And, and as you said, Brian, we've got this thing now. So the idea is is that even though Brett has turned heel and cost Savage the title, he hates Hogan, but he's, he's teaming with him because he wants to beat Hogan for the belt and Savage hates Brett for doing that and for teaming with Hogan and he hates Hogan because he lost the world title to him because of Brett and Hogan hates Savage so much that he's willing to help Brett and my head's fucking spinning <laughs> like that is where we are at with it with, with, with the with the idea being that um yeah brett's doing this because he wants to make sure that he gets a title shot. title shot uh, freudian slip if you've ever heard it um he wants the title shot and he wants to win the title from hogan who he hates uh he hates him so much that he's willing to help him and if you think if you try to think too hard about it, which I really recommend you do not, why the fuck would Hogan give him a title shot? So, this is just such a mess. And I think some people brought up the very fair point that Bret in any other um, incarnation would fight backstage. And he'd have the clout to make sure things didn't go down this way. But obviously, within a few months, and considering all we had been through with Vince McMahon, he uh, he just can't be fucked anymore. He just doesn't have the energy for it. And we see that throughout his his uh, WCW run. And yeah, I mean, this was never going to be the match that these two could have had in their prime. Because Savage is knackered. He, his legs gone. He should have had surgery like maybe a month or two before this. He would wrestle for another six weeks, I believe, before finally disappearing for serious knee surgery. Uh, and and the whole thing's just such a waste of what is a legitimate dream match.
2: Yeah, but I think another thing you've got to bear in mind goes back to what we've talked about, the creative control and the egos involved here, because, you know, what does it take for Randy Savage to lose a match? Well, you have to have Miss Elizabeth, you have to have Hulk Hogan, you have to have Brass Nucks, you have to have Roddy Piper, special guest referee, you have to have all of these pieces of the puzzle in place for him to agree to lose because he's got creative control
1: and this leads to a match at the great american bash where if i remember correctly it's a tag match with hogan teaming with brett with all the machinations that i tried to get my head around just now and they would team against savage and piper who is established don't like each other even though like they show replay upon replay to show like what Savage thinks happened, didn't actually happen. Uh, and so they go into the tag match agreeing that even though they're going to team up because they hate Hogan and Hart, who hate each other, but they hate Savage and Piper more, um, they are going to have a singles match After the tag match. So they're going to tag up against Hogan and Hart. And then they're going to fight each other. And when we get to Bash 98. We'll elaborate on exactly what a fucking hot shit mess that was. Which I believe also had one of the greatest signs in the crowd of all time. Which was... I'm trying to remember, <laughs> but um, it was it was one of those instances. I have to dig it up. There was an actual. It was one of them signs where anyone worth their salt would have it confiscated because it was not flattering to those. They were was something like this. This match makes me want to watch Jurassic Park or something. Yeah,
2: it
0: was along those like lines. That. I I know what you're talking about it. It's uh it's something along those lines that you know WCW. It's like the senior tour or calling. The main event guys, dinosaurs, is something to that effect. And it was hard camera, prime
1: spot, and they just lay it in, and it was very prominent throughout that tag match at the Great American
0: Bash. We want to talk so- about fan-, fan signs. There was a large, prominent Ultimate Warrior sign right there in the second row throughout this entire pay-per-view, and. You, you know what? Warrior could have been the run-in, so let's just be happy with the Hogan involvement and be glad that we still got several months before Warrior shows up in WCW, because at this point, he is signed, I believe.
1: Yeah, uh, that, oh. that, that that sign turned out to be gorilla
0: fucking marketing,
1: didn't it? Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i, I want to well, say he's he's already signed i want to say that they have him in their back pocket the idea is we have warrior we're losing in the ratings we'll use him whenever we need to pop something whenever yeah. we are desperate he is our our go-to to help us save us
1: warrior yeah they <laughs> they pop something they pop the bubble they were enjoying in the mid 90s <laughs> that bubble fucking popped
2: Gotta say as well, my favourite sign in the crowd that I've ever seen um, actually was at a WCW event, and it was simply said, "Why can't we all just get along?" (laughs) I like (laughs) that, which completely defeats the object of wrestling. Anyway, it is main event time. The World Tag Team titles are on the line as the Outsiders defend against Sting and the Giant. So according to Michael Buffer, this match is... Yeah, I'm going on off on one about Michael Buffer again. This match is for the WCW NWO Tag Team World Heavyweight Championship. Uh, the champions come out first dressed in red and black, representing NWO Wolfpack. They're accompanied by Dusty Rhodes, and I had... Absolutely no recollection of Dusty being with them when until I watched this. Um, Buffer announces Nash as being seven foot four inches tall. What's he going to be announcing the giant as? Um, This was Hall's first match back after well after legit being sent to rehab by WCW. I don't think they elaborated on commentary where he'd been, just that he'd been away. Um, Giant is out next wearing the black and white of NWO Hollywood and Buffer announces him as seven feet tall for fuck's sake. Um, Finally, out comes Sting, who has previously offered an NWO black and white shirt, but has turned it down. So can someone tell me why have we got this odd couple team of WCW Sting and NWO Hollywood's Giant?
1: Should I filled this one for the sake of Brian's sanity?
0: Go ahead. I, I should have done more research in all this stuff. I, I remember that the turn just happened recently, but the idea that even though the giant is now an affiliate of NWO Hollywood, that the sting just wouldn't walk away from this. It doesn't make any sense, but okay, go ahead. Give us a backstory.
1: Yeah. So, so this is what would be known later on as a Vince Russo classic. And bear in mind, Vince Russo hadn't really started going overboard and doing this. He, he really started doing this in, in 99 for WWE and 2000 for WCW, where a match would be set up and then all of the, 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 the scenarios and, and the, the factors going into it would be completely changed, rendering the match a confusing mess after it's already been signed. Uh, and in this case, you've got, if you think, going back from like K 97 early 1998, before the NWO started to, to split, you, Sting and the Giant are two of the top pro WCW guys, even if you overlook the fact that Giant joined NWO at one point. Um, They are against the NWO and the Outsiders have the belts. They won them from the Steiners after Scott turned on Rick and what appeared at first to be a classic WCW versus NWO tag match. You've now got the Fisher in in the middle of the NWO. It's turned into Hollywood and Wolfpack and... uh, in addition to that, for, for whatever reason, now that, now that Nash is out the scene, I guess because that's mostly who Giant was feuding with, he's decided he's happy to saddle back up with Hollywood and he joins. But we've still got this match for the tag titles and Sting, as you as you touched upon, Brian, Sting just apparently thinks, okay, I'll just I roll with the punches here and team with him anyway. Uh, and they they're kind of telegraphing what's going to happen here. But yeah, Scott Hall is tentatively pro-Wolfpack because of Nash. But there's, there's so much swerve telegraphing here, you know. So what happens happens in the match. But going into it, we've got, oh, this is a, a tag title match. But, oh, the Giant's done this. Why Sting acting like nothing's happened sort of thing?
0: It's funny. This is the second match of the night where I believe people were promised one thing, and then they had the complete thing shake up the night of the event. Because earlier, if I remember correctly, Goldberg was supposed to take on the Flock in a one-by-one match, and if Goldberg were to lose against any member of the Flock, then Raven would become the new champion. But somewhere along the way, that just be- turned into Goldberg versus Saturn. So It's it's the same deal. We, going into this event, now everything just doesn't make any sense, and this main event between... NW Wolfpack and WCW NWO? Like, it doesn't make a lick of sense whatsoever. Sting should have just walked, but whatever. This is a This is a good old WCW, like you yeah. guys say, because WCW, right? Yep. Oh, this is the moment oh yes. for it. But yeah, I
1: mean, the Gold, the Goldberg Saturn thing, because I, I remember that that interview I was singing the praises of earlier. Saturn was kind of no, there'll be no flock, just me. They're putting this into Saturn's going to turn face. He just has to do this one little job first, sort mm-hmm. of thing. So, so there's an element of sense, even though it's a it's a ass about face way of actually executing it at least you can you can explain it to someone who's coming in from the outside. Uh, try doing that with this fucking main event.
2: Okay, well we start <laughs> off we start off with Hall and Sting. Um Sting gets the upper hand, and it, you know, even that doesn't make sense because if someone's been away for several months, like Scott Hall has, you want to put the other guy in first and build up to Scott Hall coming back in the match, but they can't even get that right. Um, Sting gets the upper hand, he hits two Stinger splashes. He goes for the Scorpion Deathlock early, but Nash makes the save. Um, it's two on one till the Giant finally gets in and goes after Nash. Giant tags in, so does Nash. Nash quickly tries for a jackknife powerbomb, but Giant runs him into the corner instead. Um, today on commentary even picks up and says that the crowd don't know how to react to this odd couple pairing of Sting and Giant. Um, there's clearly a lot of support for Hall and Nash, and there's a let's go wolf pack giant ringing out across the building. Um, Hall and Sting are back in the ring and this whole main event just feels like our perennial main eventers are going through their trademark spots. Shivani mentions how Hall and Nash were two of the founding fathers of the NWO two years ago, which to me only goes to highlight how stagnant that main event scene is becoming, as we've already mentioned. Um, Sting is isolated in the Outsiders corner. Giant can only watch on. The commentators emphasize the great teamwork and relationship between the tag champions. While, um, While he's in a bear hug by Nash, Sting finally reaches over and makes the hot tag to Giant. He slams Nash like he's nothing. Giant lands a leg drop for a two count. He then climbs to the top rope, misses the top biggest top rope splash in the history of wrestling. Uh, Both men are down. Dusty Rhodes distracts the ref while Nash makes a second powerbomb attempt on Giant. However, Hall grabs the tag team title belt and smashes his own partner over the back of the head with it. Giant makes the cover for a three count and we have new world tag team champions as Hall and Giant embrace The crowd are baffled and confused. I'm baffled and confused. The response is muted. A few items of rubbish are thrown into the ring. Sting looks on stony faced with a tag team title belt slung over his shoulders. Um, The commentators say Sting's got a big decision to make. And and with that, our pay for
0: you comes to a a somewhat anticlimactic conclusion. Man, what a terrible, terrible way to sign off. And... The, the crowd itself didn't know what to do throughout this entire match. They're pro Wolfpack for the majority of it, but even in the end when Sting was getting wailed on and he gets that hot tag to the Giant, there's just no response. There's nothing there. And to have this go on for 10 minutes just for Scott Hall to turn around and clock his partner in the back of the head with a with the, uh, the Tag Team Championship Why didn't you do that at the beginning of this match and just save us all a bunch of time? Let's all get on with it. Let's just be done. Not only
1: that, but uh, their, their NWO Hollywood's big coup is for them to pull this stunt that takes one half of the tag team titles away from them and puts it onto someone else. So all of this is a horizontal move. They are they are st- they are still in ownership of one half of the tag team titles and apparently they think they've got a chance of recruiting Sting, which as I said earlier in the podcast is just the most fucking absurd storyline <laughs> and a true example of them jumping the shark in their efforts to just keep moving the furniture around the same room
0: with well, the same guys. Yeah, a week after this it'd be Sting joining the Wolfpack, I believe, so that's where this ends up. Yep. What a now, load of bollocks.
2: I mean this <laughs> this did seem to be a good pay per view until we got to our main event level matches, the last two matches basically.
1: And that became a trope for WCW around this time, didn't it? And this yes. is this is one of the marquee examples. This this would be exhibit A on the Wikipedia entry for WCW having a hot undercard and a terrible main event scene.
2: Mm. Definitely, definitely. But um, yeah, it it summed up everything that was good and everything that was bad, I think.
1: And it's so symbolic that on the very same show that Chris Jericho had that amazing memorable angle that and, and Goldberg continued his meteoric rise and, and Chris Benoit tore the house down again with a match of the night that we would have this shit. It's just so symbolic that that was all happening on the underneath.
2: Yeah. And, and know yeah, the thing, the thing that I remember about this pay-per-view wasn't the, the main event tag match. It wasn't Savage against Bret Hart. It was the, did Chris Jericho and Dean Malenko dressed as Ciclope angle that 21 years later still sticks in my memory.
1: Yeah, but you know, you know, only the main event has draw, those guys can't draw, yeah, fuck you, you'll be dead in three years. And we'll be and will be subjected to, you know, nearly twenty years of what I would very generously consider 20% good stuff. It's not like there hasn't been good wrestling to enjoy between 2001 and 2018, but the monopolized business that has been forced upon us by the stupidity of WCW uh, meant that it was was scraps. Absolute scraps.
0: I I did do a quick fact check, by the way. Sting joins the NW Wolfpack on June 1st and It was fun though, wasn't it? er, uh, What you were saying earlier, maybe back in the day I liked Wolfpack. I was all about Conan. I was about it, about it, and Rowdy Rowdy as, you know, a 14-year-old country boy would. So the idea of just Sting joining the Wolfpack, I didn't mind it because I didn't watch all throughout 1997. That wasn't a thing for me. But now looking back, that is so ridiculous. The fact that you had a guy who didn't say anything for a year and a half, and as soon as he puts a little bit of red on his face, now he won't shut the hell up. He becomes <laughs> he becomes the wacky Jim Carrey Sting again, and uh, it's just bad. Yeah. Oh, it's so bad to look back nowadays.
2: Oh man. OK, now, before we let you go, Brian, we always ask all of our guests to, uh, to select a theme tune from the annals of WCW. So, Liam, you have got our tune queued up, I believe. Yes, I do. If you, uh, if you press play and Brian, um, tell us what it is and why you've chosen it.
0: reason I chose this song is because I like this too. I don't know why Chris Jericho hates this what he called like basketball highlights number one he describes it that way in one of his books but I really like this song and I, I like how it's just just a cool pick me up type of song and weirdly enough the version that gets played for WCW it, it doesn't have any lyrics but it's an actual real song that they bought the rights to. I don't know how this tune became production music for WCW, but on YouTube, I've come across a version of the song by a group called, I think, Mastodon. No, not Mastodon. What what is it called? Uh, All the Days by some group. I can't remember the name of it right now. (laughs) Definitely not Mastodon. But the actual version with lyrics is pretty cool. I like that version, too. It sounds like... Cheesy Van Halen rock, and I'm all about it because I love that type of music.
2: Yeah, I'm just looking this up. The song is called "All the Days" by
0: uh, Mammoth. Mammoth, (laughs) close. (laughs) Yeah, Mastodon was pretty close. Yeah,
2: yeah, we'll uh, do that
0: one. Well, Mastodon is straight up like doomed stoner rock. I, I would love to hear their take on this song. I've seen them several times, and I definitely would pop to see if they did "All the Days" live on wherever, but that's not going to happen.
2: Do you see, I, I had absolutely no idea that this was a real song because all the time I, I heard this song and this was this was your, your classic white meat babyface Chris Jericho where he'd lean up again with his back against the guardrail and pose with the fans and just came across, as, to me at least, came across in the late 90s as this really outdated babyface. And the, as soon as he turned heel, I was... I was very grateful because at last we were seeing some real personality out of this guy. Yes, so this this represents the bad Jericho to me.
0: It's such a good song though. I I, I don't know. I, I I like the little tune. It's got the melody. It's like I said, the kind of shades of '80s Van Hagar. That's what I really like about it. The little uh, the little chimes here and there. I I, I dig it.
1: Well, I think that is exactly why he despised it. You answered your own question to an extent there, Brian. Is uh, if I remember that excerpt from the book, it was the fact that he tuned into some random fluff filler on a sports network and saw it being used as a as a dub for some highlights. Uh, just made it seem so throwaway, and it kind of reflected on just how much effort had been put into giving him a theme song, which, as we know, is an important part of the package. You remember the infamous story about when Jerry Lynn was signed by WCW and they wanted him to be a, an American counterpart to lute. They wanted an American luchador, which is not a bad concept at all. If you think about American Dragon, Brian Danielson, it's been done successfully. Uh, plenty of Gaijin in Japan have been that masked American. Uh, so they went to do that and he was pitching his names and ideas. And I think Lynn said in an interview with Power he, Slam um, he, he used some Disney elements and some comic book elements for inspiration. He really tried to find something that connect with the fans as a, as a, as a mass wrestler. And while they're trying to hash it out, the book Kevin Sullivan just said, ah, fuck, just call him JL. And I think that was Jericho's grievance is that he was getting that sort of flippant treatment. Whereas when he they he finally after wearing them down for months convinced WCW booking team to turn him heel. He got the more personalised music. He I think he had a say in that, and I think that was very important for that. Um, I also want to say I I it, I did a bit my own homework, and am I right in saying Brian, you actually brought it to Chris Jericho's attention that. His babyface
0: theme was taken from a real song. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, because I think I put that. It was maybe it was one of my uh, early days of doing random WCW facts. I was trying to put a little uh, factoid uh, photo to go viral, or whatever. And I think that I mentioned that, and he kind of responded in the snippy way that he can do sometimes when he's like trying to dismiss someone bringing that up, but. I pointed out, like, no, this is an actual song with lyrics. Here's the link. You can listen to it for yourself. And I think he kind of, oh, wait, no, that's, I didn't know this. And even the fans that were, uh, like, kind of kicking me alongside him were just, they all turned around and said, oh, yeah, this is a real song. What the hell? And like I said, I don't know how how that happened. I don't know where this came from. Uh, We talked about this earlier, that Chris Benoit has a similar track where that's an actual song that they licensed and they stripped the lyrics out. So uh, I guess the one that people describe as like this really bad porno theme for Chris Benoit, like, no, that's an actual song that ran on MTV in the early 90s. Like, it is so strange that this happened the way it did. I don't know where Mammoth is nowadays. I don't know if they put out a bunch of stuff. I don't know if they're just a prolific band that everyone knows and loves. But 2019, here, check this out. It's weird. It's cool. I like it. Yeah, I think you'll find Brian having put on ice. Sorry. Oh god. Uh, it got me a second. I'm like, wait, wait, what? Uh oh yeah.
2: And and on that note, <laughs> on that note we shall leave things. Brian, just before you go, um just remind us if people want to uh get a hold of your stuff on online on social media, how can they find you?
0: Uh, you can just find me anywhere online under the WCW Worldwide moniker. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Tumblr. I've got WCWWorldwide.com. Uh, it's been kind of dead lately because uh, we had a kid in April, so like that was a thing. Where now oh. a lot of a lot of my day is just making sure that this boy is kept alive, and that's a <laughs> huge thing because
2: it's a responsibility. Know, yeah. yeah, you know,
0: I, I can't just walk away and scan magazines and hope he's doing okay in the other room, you know, I need to actually make sure that this thing's still breathing and everything is good. It's weird, weird world. But then also my site had a, a couple of uh, attacks about a month ago. So I, I took it down for a second. It still exists. It just hasn't been updated in the past maybe two months, but I've got some things in the in the can that I'm working on. So still should be posting here relatively soon and everything running up back to normal relatively soon here.
2: Awesome. Well, congratulations on the uh, new fatherhood and thank you ever so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us. You're welcome back anytime you like. It's always been, it's been, it's been great to talk all things WCW with you. Thank you very much. So on behalf of Brian, And my co-host Liam, this is the Twisted Genius saying thanks for joining us and we'll see you ringside.